Well, it's that time for us to dig into the Word this morning, and uh, this uh, hopefully will be the last one-off message that you'll hear from me, and uh, we will launch into our series in the book of Galatians. Very excited about that. But we have been talking about idolatry uh, to some degree in our uh, first hour, and so I thought what we would uh, do is take a, a look at one aspect of idolatry that is very important for us to know and uh, so I've crafted a message around uh, an important verse out of Isaiah 44. I'll get to that in a moment, but uh, just a few introductory remarks about idolatry. Idolatry. The word brings to our mind stone and, and wood totems and figurines created in the image of gods of the ancient primitive nations like the Canaanites and Egyptians and Babylonians. Idolatry was prevalent in lives of prehistoric peoples, no doubt about it, but it didn't die out with them. Oh, no. No, it's alive and well today and just as prevalent. Well, if you're referring to statues venerated by the Catholic Church or icons that the Eastern Orthodox Church reveres, don't worry, I'm neither Catholic nor Eastern Orthodox. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But idolatry is not restricted to those practices to, or to religious statues or icons in the image of so-called saints. Idolatry is the act of worshiping something other than the one true God, pure and simple. In the Bible, it's a fitting way, actually, to characterize unbelievers. Both Testaments, you may or may not know, use idolater as a technical term for unbelievers, and that's because they always worship something other than the God of the Bible. Paul tells us in Romans 1, they worship the creation rather than the creator. Do we, do we see this all over the place today? I think we do. The desire to worship the almighty dollar is evident, so evident it motivates those in our current government to overstep their God-given bounds to punish the good. That's the god of money. It's always been popular. So is the god of power. The government is overrun with officials that thirst for it and serve it by keeping their powerful positions at all costs. In case you didn't know, money and power are the twin gods in the modern American pantheon. And would you believe Satan worships? has been on the rise lately. Oh yes, many in the entertainment business proudly call him Lord. Now there's also the God of religion. Ironically, idolatry is a convenient way for religious people to redefine the God they worship on their own terms. One example of this is the desire for a gender-neutral Bible that's been in the works for many years, decades in fact, but I'm not referring to the idea of simply changing masculine pronouns in contexts that address both men and women. There's nothing wrong with a change like that, and, uh, you know, if the, the context warrants it, for sure. Now, I, I'm talking about redefining God entirely to suit self-interests. Some refuse to worship a God who manifests himself exclusively in male terms, and so they've changed God's male gender titles and pronouns to their, to their own preference. God is father-mother. Jesus is son-daughter. 
Others go so far as to replace anthropomorphic or human terms and titles that the Bible ascribes to God with terms fit or befitting nature and inanimate objects. So the Holy Spirit is now the sacred wind, and God is the holy expanse. Beloved, any attempt at renaming God is idolatry. You see, there's much in a name, and the Lord didn't represent himself the way he did in the Bible for no good reason. So there's no good reason to change God, which is exactly what idolatry does. You see, when people tamper with God's names, they invariably tamper with his attributes. They emphasize his love over against his wrath or his grace over against his justice. And if you change God's name, you put his attributes in some contrived order of priority and you redefine how he relates to people, well, then everything is up for grabs. You can redefine atonement and resurrection and hell and marriage, even homosexuality, and many have. And listen to this. When idolaters change God's nature and character, they also change the way that he is ordained to be worshipped. So Christianity becomes something completely different. That's idolatrous. Well, let me give you <clears throat> another example of idolatry. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's also, it's also per, a pernicious advancement in the area of biblical studies that is carried out by apostates. And I'm talking about transgender hermeneutics. You're kidding. No, I'm not. I discovered it while I was scouring the internet for a transgender Bible. And just so you know, I didn't find one. Uh, but it's, it, 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 but it, it, if there isn't one, then you know it's coming. That just makes sense. But what I did find was quite, and quite by accident, uh, and also is very troubling, uh, is this idea of a transgender hermeneutic. I came across some academic articles that very clearly challenged the tried and true hermeneutic approach to the Bible and replaced it with a transgender hermeneutic. Now, by hermeneutics, if in case you don't know, Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. It has principles as a science, as all sciences do. It has principles of interpretation that are universally accepted among serious and sound Bible scholars. Principles like every verse must bear the weight of the entire Bible, or scripture must interpret scripture or the explicit passages need to interpret the implicit passages, or context defines words and phrases, and so on. Students of the Bible apply these principles in order to arrive at a correct interpretation of a biblical text. But over the decades, the evil one has put it into the minds of the religious, religious unbelievers, that when they find it difficult to argue their particular interpretation of a, of a text by conventional hermeneutic methods, they don't need to change their position. They just need to change their hermeneutics. Do you see how that works? If you're not able to argue on the same hermeneutical playing field as the rest of us, well, then change the hermeneutical playing field. And that's exactly what's been happening. Feminists created a feminist hermeneutic 
many years ago to make the Bible support a feminist agenda. Homosexuals created a homosexual hermeneutic to make the Bible validate a homosexual agenda. There's even a radical, uh, I'm sorry, a racial hermeneutic that uses the Bible to promote a minority point of view and recently, as you might expect, has incorporated social justice and a woke agenda. As you can see, all these argue for the issues after which they are named. Well, the academic world has been very busy developing a transgender hermeneutic. You can read all about it in an article called The Bible and the Transgender Christian Mapping Transgender Hermeneutics in the 21st Century from the Journal of Bible and Reception. We're not surprised at this either, are we? We knew it was coming, and more is coming. Now, you no doubt have an idea that idolatry is evil and abhorrent to God. I want to examine with you one aspect of this abhorrent practice, and that is idolatry's deception. Deception. To do that, we need to look at Isaiah 44, verse 20. If you uh, take your Bibles and turn there, I've divided this study this morning in two parts. The first part establishes the deception that comes with idolatry, and the second part shows us why it's important for us to know this for our Christian walk. So, part one, part one, idolatry's deception. Our verse reads this, He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, the verse emphasizes self-deception as a characteristic of idolatry. I want you to see that. So strong its deception, so powerful its deluding influence, that idolaters can actually reach a place where they believe the error that they embrace is truth. The exact opposite, of course, of reality. That's the deception. In this particular verse, we see that Idolatry deceives the idolater into embracing the exact opposite of what is profitable. Let's consider four reversals of falsehood one at a time, okay? Four reversal falsehoods is, is what I'm calling them. The first one is this. What he believes to be nourishing is really poisonous. That's the first reversal. What he believes to be nourishing is really poisonous. It says he feeds on ashes, now, the Hebrew word that our English Bibles translate feeds is also the word for grazing, to put animals out to pasture. It's an interesting image that Isaiah paints with it. Grazing is what animals do to live. They need to eat, and a faithful shepherd will lead his sheep to green pastures full of good and nutritious grass. The idolater chooses as his pasture, as his place of grazing for nourishment, a wasteland. Worse still, he believes it to be the greenest pasture around. But it's not. Isaiah shows the idolater poisoning his mind and spiritual health with lies. The ashes are figurative for the idol that lies. All idols lie. What the idolater feeds on and looks for as to satisfy his needs and his sustenance is something that is quite hazardous. 
and it takes the place of God as his sustenance, and it will eventually kill him. That's the first reversal. Here's the second. What he thinks is a sure guide is really error, or misinformation. That's a word that we've heard a lot of. We might as well use that. His sure guide is really misinformation. As a result of grazing on poisonous lies, the idolater is misled. How does that happen exactly? Well, Isaiah tells us in the next phrase, a deluded heart has led him astray. With all thi- as with all things, idolatry begins in the heart of an individual. Now, the prevailing view today, and actually has always been all throughout time, really, uh, in the modern era, or past 2,000 years, this is a Greek, actually a Greek way of thinking, has, has always been to believe that the heart is the seat of the emotions, and the head, of course, is the seat of the intellect. And when the two are in harmony, well, that's a great thing, but often they're at odds, and you need to choose one or the other in order to, well, in order to, uh, to achieve the best result that you that you want. But is that what the Bible teaches? Now, the Bible does have categories for our emotions. It has categories for our intellect, but it never uses heart and head to designate these. The Bible never sets heart against the head, but rather it sets it against the outward appearance of a person. For example, God says to unrighteous Israel, with their lips they praise me, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, Israel plays lip service to God. They're really not interested in his ways at all. They just go through the motions, practicing empty rituals, and this is hypocrisy. The Bible actually equates heart with head, and with soul, and with mind. In essence, the heart is the control center of an individual. It's the real you. It's where you believe and worship and love and sin and murder, where you do everything. And Jesus tells us that God condemns people on the level of thought, whether the thoughts ever make it out into the actions. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder, and lust amounts to adultery. So God sees and he judges our hearts. Now, the adjective that Isaiah uses to modify the idolatrous heart in our verse is deluded. Do you see that? Deluded. That means his control center is corrupt. And a corrupt control center produces corrupt behavior. The heart produces actions that are in keeping with what is stored there. The root produces the fruit. This is how Jesus put it in Matthew 15, 19. Listen. But the things that that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And by the way, that's a short list. A deluded control center will mislead a person with lies. Now, I might illustrate this idea, this truth, with, a, with the vital role of air traffic controllers. Air traffic controllers, there's been a rash of near misses on the runways of late all across the country. Maybe you've heard of this in Seattle, Austin, New York. 
yes, Boston, all were the result of human error and all were saved by astute air traffic controllers. These guys up in the towers have an, a very important job. They tell pilots where to go. The pilots listen to them. Pilots fly primarily by instruments, you see, not by sight. So the only thing that they can tell is whether the plane is flying properly and where they are geographically, but not if they're on a collision course with another plane. They have to depend on the controllers for that. According to the FAA, traffic, air traffic controllers are, quote, often responsible for several aircraft simultaneously. The number of, air, of crafts varies with size of airport, time of day, and weather. Controllers must be able to work under extreme pressure, with, often without a break, for up to four hours at a stretch. They must be able to visualize the whole traffic picture, establish priorities, and think clearly in emergencies. They must have a good memory and be able to listen to more than one pilot at a time. The pace is often hurried, and controllers must make quick and accurate decisions. Any indecision or delay could contribute to a catastrophic loss of lives and property, end quote. How would you like to have that, that job? Now, you can imagine how tragic it would be if the planes are guided by a diluted control center. If a plane receives wrong information, it could miss a runway, wind up off course, or crash into another plane. Well, a person's heart is like air traffic control, and his body is like the plane. His body depends on the information that it receives from its control center to guide it. So a person with a diluted control center will receive wrong information and he will be misled. Peter tells us that the only sure guide for life and godliness is in the knowledge that Jesus gave us in the Bible. So anything that competes with that is nothing short of satanic and misleading. Isaiah gives us a very scary picture of a person in our verse who puts his full trust in something other than God's word to lead him through life, to interpret life for him, to define right from wrong, and give his life meaning and purpose. His trust is misplaced, and the object of his trust will lead him in the exact opposite direction that he needs to go. Third, reversal. What he thinks is his Savior condemns him. What he thinks is his Savior condemns him. In this case, the idolater is totally powerless to do anything about his situation. The phrase reads, and he cannot deliver himself. He cannot save himself from the harmful situation because he doesn't see it as harmful. Remember, he's, de he's deceived and not aware that anything is wrong. He's mistaken wrong for right. He ventures into pastures of lies and feeds on them, reveling in future promises that his idol cannot fulfill. In his pasture, he's confused. He's confused immoral for moral, heresy for truth, bad for good. And our verse tells us that what the deceived person winds up choosing to deliver himself to be, uh, d delivers him to a better life, that is, are those things that God actually condemns. 
The deception is so strong that he runs after those things that are harmful to him, thinking all the while that they are his saviors. He trusts in relationships and jobs and money, material possessions, drugs, health, human abilities, science. Anything, really, can become his deliverer, but in the end, these counterfeit saviors will not come through for him. Psalmist speaks a great deal of seeking God as refuge and the danger of counterfeit refuge. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. After a large section in Psalm 115 on the absolute absurdity of idolatry, verses 9 to 11 declare, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. When one is blind to the word of God, there is absolutely no hope of discerning any situation rightly. He needs the light of truth to lead him out of this dark place. Otherwise, he is totally helpless and hopeless whether he realizes it or not. Here's a fourth reversal. What he thinks is wise is really foolish. What he thinks is wise is really foolish. Next phrase. He cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the idol that he holds. The expression holds in his right hand is, in this context is, is a figurative way of speaking of an individual's close possession. That is to say that the idolater clings to this with all his might. He clings to what he prizes above all else. He keeps it close to him at all times. In this case, what he holds dear to him are the lies that he's been grazing on. They satisfy the sinful desires of the heart, tickle his ears and tell him what he wants to hear, soothes his troubled conscience, justifies his sinful behavior, assures him that he is right in all that he does, fuels his pride, uplifts him. And it's hard for him to see error as anything but truth. Counterfeit truth comes, you know, in various forms and dressed up in truth's clothing. And unless one is steeped in the Word of God, he won't be able to detect it. He'll think it's truth. And worse still, he'll pass off real truth, biblical truth, as a lie. Again, idolatry's deception creates a complete reversal. Now, we shouldn't expect otherwise. After all, it's a fitting consequence of the sin of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. The late Edward Young put it so well in his commentary on Isaiah at this point. He says, speaking of the idolater, quote, The service of idolatry is deceptive. It permits the idolater to remain ignorant of his true state and deludes him into believing that he's, that he's doing wisely. He refused to believe that what he holds in his right hand is a lie. It is a lie, for it gives him the impression of being what it is not, and so deceives the hopes of the one who trusts it. End quote. Paul brings this out clearly in Romans 1, the result of a willful suppression of the truth and a desire to worship the creation 
instead of the creator, God then gave depraved minds over to their own lusts. A depraved mind is a deluded control center that produces a depraved lifestyle. Now, that's part one. It's what we should know about the deception of idolatry. We come to part two and we see why knowledge of idolatry's deceit is, is so vital for the Christian walk. This particular verse comes in a context and we need to understand the context. Why does Isaiah mention this to God's people? Well, let me give you four answers to this question and I'll put them to you in practical terms for us. Four answers. First, it is to guard ourselves from idols. It's to guard ourselves from idols. It's important for us to be on the alert because of how easy it is to fall into idolatrous behavior. It's as easy as sinning. And in many cases, sin is idolatry. Huh? How? Well, when a particular context, in a particular context, we idolize something or someone other than God and serve it instead, we become idolaters or idolatrous, I should say. Let's be more precise. Israel, or I'm sorry, Isaiah warns Israel of a deluded heart that has misled the idolater. The Hebrew word translated misled or turn aside, if you're reading the King James, that he uses here occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe apostasy. So Isaiah is addressing Israelites who are most likely apostates Although, of course, we know that there, there is a, a, also a remnant, always was, that is hearing Isaiah and will benefit from his message. These Israelites were turning from God and from his word to dumb idols and the ideologies behind those gods. So centuries later, the Apostle John would reiterate this warning to his flock, 1 John 5, Verses 20 and 21, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So we must do that. It's very important that we guard our hearts, for from it flow the springs of life. Second, Isaiah tells this to God's people to remind us that we serve the only true God. Just before Isaiah speaks of idolatry, he emphasizes in verses 6 to 8 the fact that God is the one true God. There is only one. And we would do well to remind ourselves of that in those times when we are tempted to desire something more than pleasing God. I mentioned at the opening of our study that the word idolater is a technical term in the Bible for unbelievers and never used to designate the true people of God. That's because true conversion is about turning from dumb idols to the living God. But that doesn't mean, of course, that we don't turn back to dumb idols at times. We can and we do commit idolatrous acts. How exactly do we do that? Well, when we set our affections on anything other than Christ at any given moment, that's idolatry. And those objects 
are not limited to bad things. Don't make that mistake. You know, like vices, smoking, drunkenness, substance abuse, compulsive lying, and so on. Now, idols can also be good things that become an obsession to us. Well-behaved children, happiness, a pain-free life, a peaceful life, how others regard me, a submissive wife, a faithful spouse. Those could be idols as well. And the idolatry centers around worshiping the idol, serving it. Now, how do you serve an idol? Well, think about money. Of course, Jesus said that you cannot serve God and money. You'll hate one, love the other. What does it mean to serve money? How do we serve money? By doing whatever it takes to keep it and to get more of it and to protect it which may involve deceptive practices, unbiblical practices. How do you serve the God of happiness? By doing whatever it takes to ensure your happiness. That means persecution for Christ is not part of that. We've got to avoid that. Never, never confronting a sinning believer, that would not lend to happiness, or preaching the truth to unbelieving audiences, that makes me most uncomfortable. Those activities are not conducive to what we think happiness is. It's a good thing to have obedient children. But we don't, we don't seek uh, to have obedient children at all costs. We need rather to seek to please Christ in the moments we have disobedient children in order to find out from him and from his word how we're to minister them at that moment. But instead, of course, people who may have as an idol uh, uh, obedient children will take it upon themselves to manipulate their behavior, go outside the Bible in order to achieve what they want either with beatings, verbal abuse, or threaten, to be, or threaten misery until kids comply and until a parent gets what he wants. That's how he serves that particular idol of, of having well-behaved kids. You see how that works? So we become like the idolater when we want something so badly that we won't be happy without it. And we commit idolatry when we do whatever it takes to get it, including disobeying God's word. When God is the object of our affection in any given situation, then we want to please Christ, and we want to serve Him by doing what He says, even if it makes the situation worse. So you can see how subtle idolatry is and how easy it is to fall into if we're not guarding our hearts. Third, Isaiah tells us this to urge us to expose error by defending the truth. Verses 9 through 20, which we heard read this morning, and I'll not read them again, there, you know, it emphasizes the utter foolishness of idolatry. And they present a polemic, really, against idolatry. That is, Isaiah gives an argument against idolatry idolatry, why it's so futile and foolish. And he pours it on thick, too, mocking idolatry and those who engage in it. 
A great way, beloved, to keep ourselves from idolatry and its lies and empty promises is to stand for the truth in this particular area and defend the truth and pursue the truth in a way that simultaneously exposes the error before us. That's living the Christian life polemically or on the offensive For example, mature Christians rejoice in the very things over which the world complains, like trials. People may complain to you about trials. You turn it around and talk about how important trials are in the Christian life and why you don't complain but rather rejoice. When the world relies on the stars for direction and for hope, You speak of a sovereign God's control of the stars and how he made them and how he controls life itself. When they fret over global concerns, we speak of how Christ will put all things right at the very end when he returns. This is living life polemically, exposing the error that might originally tempt us but that we stand firm against. Fourth and finally, Isaiah wants to warn us that idolatry thrives in certain contexts. There are certain contexts that are more conducive to idolatrous thinking and behavior. I'll share two uh, of the more prominent ones. One is when we carry, uh, when we carry with us unrepentant sin. Now, the particular Israelites were in this context, uh, were carrying around a lot of sin. They were particularly then susceptible to idolatry. They were susceptible to idolatry because the majority of them had, had been hardened by their sin and were soon to be taken captive because of it. Now, that's very important. That's an important context. You may or may not be aware of just how much the condition of the heart impacts how we interpret the Bible and obey Scripture. We need to recognize that the spiritual status of any person affects the way he interprets the Bible. Uh, There cannot be a, a separation between a spiritual condition of an individual and his understanding of the biblical text. This is certainly true in the context of unbelievers. Now, they find God's truth foolish, right? Apostates with seared consciences advocate legalism. Pharisees' hatred for Jesus blinded them to his truth, and they wouldn't listen to him. Rather, they repudiated him, and eventually they crucified him. Pride and selfishness prevented the disciples in John 6 from following Jesus. Apostates in Second Peter and Jude are led by their stomachs. Depraved man suppresses the truth. As these instances show, there is no spiritual life, and where there is no spiritual life, there can be no spiritual understanding or spiritual walk. Without the mind of Christ, one cannot appropriate his words, or, cons- or he'll only consider them foolish. So there is a direct link between one's spiritual status and one's ability to understand and appropriate the words of the Holy Spirit. But we can go further. 
unrepentant believers increase their chances of misinterpreting and disobeying the text. It's very true. There's a reason why the sage tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to trust God with our whole heart and not lean on our own understanding. How often do Christians rationalize spiritual truth to justify their particular sinful thoughts and actions? Quite a bit. It's interesting to see Christians, even veteran ones, change their particular theology that they've held for years because they now find themselves in an uncomfortable situation that forces them to choose between their idol and God, between God and lying to keep their job or cheating to make more money or appeasing the ungodly behavior of loved ones or friends to save a relationship or a marriage or something unethical to keep a prestigious position. Our understanding of Isaiah 44.20 would tell us that in these moments, God becomes someone different to us. Whether, uh, whereas before he was holy and demanded that we be holy, now, now God's, he is the God who is more understanding of my unbiblical point of view, and he makes allowances. It was in the early years of my pastorate before we really had any kind of marriage policy in the church that two people approached me to get married. They both claimed to be Christians. I had my doubts. One had grown up in a Christian home and claimed to have been a Christian for over 30 years. The other had supposedly just become one days before this encounter. Yet the interesting thing was they were living together and had been for several years. I had, as I say, my doubts about their faith, but rather than miss an opportunity for evangelism, I agreed to give them premarital counseling in hopes of helping them to see the truth of their situation and hopefully their own spiritual status before God. It wasn't long before we got to the topic of living together outside of marriage and all the immoral things that go with that. We were in 1 Corinthians 7. And after we discussed and agreed that the only time a man and a woman can live together in the way that they were was as husband and wife, I asked them what, what they were going to do about their sinful situation. You see, we couldn't continue in our premarital counseling until they handled that problem together biblically. Before they walked out in a fit of rage with cursings and swearing, they tried explaining to me why separating until they were properly married was not the best choice. One excuse among several common excuses that people in this situation are prone to give was this, that though the Bible spoke against their current lifestyle, and they admitted it, they were convinced that there were bigger, more important matters happening in the world that demanded God's attention, which, practically speaking, meant that God wasn't concerned so much with what they were doing. He was too busy for that. Their sin was so small compared to the heinous stuff that was out there. God could overlook it. If they were Christians, their idol, which was their own happiness, deceived them and led them to define God differently. He's happy when we're happy 
because that's all that matters. The other more prominent context that is most conducive to idolatry is the one that lacks sound biblical doctrine. We live in a day where everyone claims to be expert on interpreting the Bible. What this means, really, is that people claim to be expert on interpreting the Bible for themselves, because they know what they want. And once again, we can see how putting certain wants above pleasing Christ can delude a person's control center and cause him to reverse standard operating procedures. The hermeneutic process we mentioned earlier is is made up of various steps, one of which is exegesis. You've heard that term before. It's a Greek word. It means to tell a story. That is to say, after reading and understanding a, a certain biblical text, you retell it to hearers, explaining what it means as you go. Exegesis really means to extract truth from a divine, the divine story or narrative so that you can then put it into your life because your life is a story too. But it doesn't always square with the divine story. The job of a shepherd is to show you the divine story so that you can see where your personal story may be lacking. Then he can help you to make up the lack by inserting appropriate biblical truth so that the human story is in sync with the divine story. See how that works? In our biblical counseling room, for example, we show Christian couples who are acting ungodly where they're off from God's portrait of an ideal married couple in Scripture so they can repent and make the necessary changes that will get them closer to the biblical ideal. Now, if exegesis means to extract meaning from the Bible and to put it into one's life, what do Christians and churches today do when they're deluded by an idol? Well, they do the exact opposite, as we've seen. In this case, they look to their obsession and they read it into the biblical text in order to justify it. Rather than come to the Bible empty and put the divine truth into the glaring gaps, the deceiver justifies his sinful lifestyle by reading his actions into the text and finding them there. D.A. Carson, speaking of the nature of exegesis in his work Exegetical Fallacies, points out this deception, this deceptive process that characterizes so many today and says that it amounts to nothing less than idolatry. Listen to what he says, quote, Critical exegesis is exegesis that provides sound reasons for the choices it makes and the positions it adopts. Critical exegesis is opposed to merely personal opinions, appeals to blind authority, in essence the interpreters or anyone else's, arbitrary interpretations and speculative opinions. Careful handling of the Bible will enable us to hear it a little better. It is all too easy to read the traditional interpretations we've received from others into the text of Scripture. Then we may unwittingly transfer the authority of Scripture to our traditional interpretations and invest them with a false, even an idolatrous, 
degree of certainty. Because traditions are, resh are reshaped as they are passed on, after a while, we may drift far from God's word while still insisting all our theological opinions are biblical and therefore true. End quote. What a deceptive process that is. Grant Osborne, who has written extensively on the hermeneutical process, says something similar about the abuse, the abusive way that people handle the text by reading into it what they want rather than taking out of it what they need. And he talks about how the average believer actually constructs his or her theology in his work, Hermeneutical Spiral. He explains it this way, quote, Our experience and worldview tells us what we want to believe. And then we present our community, our, our community, then, I'm sorry, and then our present community helps us shape our views. Scripture often has little place except to help us find proof texts to support what we wish to believe. End quote. Idolatry, idolatry's deception. It's there in Isaiah 44.20, and so is Isaiah's caution to us. Guard yourselves from idols. Remember that we serve the only true, the only true God. Expose error then by defending the truth and avoid those contexts that are especially conducive to idolatry. And our Father in God, we are so grateful for your goodness to us, for preserving this text that it might wind up in our hands. We pray that the Holy Spirit will bring these truths to our remembrance in our everyday living until we meet again and on until you come. For we know now and can see plainly that there is a great deception that comes with idolatry and that it is very easy to fall into. We pray that we would be careful to guard our hearts because we know that from it flow the springs of life. We pray that we will be diligent uh, in, our, uh, in our practice of the ordinary means of grace, in our study of the Bible, in our prayer, in practicing the Lord's Supper and all of these other things you have given us to put the armor of God on as well, that we would be careful to think your thoughts after you and desire those things that you desire and pray for them. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.